All right. Good morning, everyone. Uh, how about we pray and get started? Uh, Lord God, we uh, do pray with the psalmist. Um, pray for the peace uh, of your people. Uh, Lord, we... Um, uh, yeah, this letter uh, is a call for, uh, as Dave said, it's a call for peace and uh, and reconciliation among your people. And we, uh, we um, pray... Uh, as David the psalmist prayed, that your people uh, would know peace. Uh, but Lord, as that song says, we know that uh, the peace uh, is not uh, is not of us. It's uh, um, uh, it's yet not I, but through Christ in me. You are our our deep and, and boundless peace, as that song says. You uh, are our amazing grace and our, our, our all surpassing mercy. Uh, so, Lord, we pray that uh, that we would know that uh, more and more as we read this passage, this book of uh, Philemon, and that we um, would understand, I guess, the uh, the implications that that has for us in our day to day lives. I pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Uh, well, please open in your Bibles to the letter to Philemon. <clears throat> uh, we are doing. A series at the moment, a few sermons on short books, single chapter books. Uh, Steve started us off last week on Obadiah, um, and next week we'll look at Third John. But this week we've got Philemon, uh, which is a letter of Paul. Um, one of my uh, uh, my old youth leaders talked about it as a if it's a uh, um, a postcard, like a, a little letter. Uh, and it's it's really good that we're able, like that it's so short because we're able to read it in one go and uh, and really pick apart at it, which is I guess the way you'd normally read a letter, isn't it? Um, so please open to Philemon. I'll read the whole thing uh, out of the NIV. <clears throat> Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker. Also to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers, because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray that the partnership, that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Therefore, although I, in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel, but I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favour you do would not seem forced but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. 
So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one thing more, prepare a guest room for me, because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. I wonder if you've noticed that it can sometimes be pretty easy to avoid people. If you really want to, I mean, it's in a small town, you know, we like to talk about how we bump into each other, but if you really want to, you can avoid dealing with people that you don't want to have to deal with. Um, Of course, it's easy on social media. I I find um, you can sort of just unfriend someone or or block them, or if you want to be really subtle and not too offensive, you can just quietly unfollow them. But even in person... It's possible, and sometimes not even all that hard, to avoid people who have hurt or offended uh, or even just disagreed with me in the past. I wonder if you found the same to be true. There's a lot of times where this is actually a good thing to do as well, right, isn't there? Because, like, some people are just really consistently bad for us to be around. Uh, People... Um, uh, who may even be bad for our physical health or or our mental health or our spiritual health. Uh, We kind of want to avoid those people, as Paul um, even tells us to do. He says, you know, um, avoid bad company because it ruins good morals. But if we sort of do this to everyone that even offends us, and and if someone offends someone else and we avoid them for for their sake which we sort of see a lot happening in our society more and more, we sort of establish a, what, we, what has been called in our culture a cancel culture. Certain people become social pariahs because of how they've treated a person or a group of people. Now, there's a lot that's been said about, about cancel culture and I'm not going to go into it a whole lot here, but I want to ask... Regardless for what our reasons for avoiding people are, regardless of what people might have done, if our culture has this, this, this culture of cancel culture, is there a way back for people that have been shut out of our lives? How can people who have hurt us ever be forgiven? There's a lot of people outside the church who are asking this very question. How can you get back into society if you've been cancelled? And the problem is there's not really an answer, at least not outside in the world. But there is an answer here in the Bible, in this letter to Philemon. Because in this letter, Paul is, is urging Philemon to forgive someone that no one else in all of society would have said that he should forgive. Onesimus uh, was his slave and, and in 
in the Roman culture, slaves were, were nothing. They were less than human. They were just objects. And so this letter gives us a breathtaking story of forgiveness. <clears throat> Evidently, uh, Onesimus had um, wronged Philemon in a big way. We're not really told how. He might have run away uh, or um, perhaps uh, he'd come across Paul a different way by... Um, uh, one of the recent theories is that maybe he went with Philemon's permission to sort of go and get Paul to intercede. But through Paul's ministry, he then became a Christian. And here the story takes a, a, a bit of a surprising turn. Because even, even still, even with the fact that Onesimus was a Christian, uh, Paul was probably one of very few people in that society who would have said that Philemon had any obligation to forgive him because he was a slave. And yet that's what Paul said he should do. Uh, based on three gospel principles, Paul said that Philemon ought to forgive him. And we're going to look at those three principles in turn. Now, the first gospel principle is this. Uh, if we share in love, then we should welcome impartially. If we share in love, we should welcome impartially. Now, in saying that, I don't really think there's probably many people here who would disagree with that statement. Uh, whether you're Christian or non-Christian in, in Western culture, love and, and welcoming and impartiality are all sort of thought of as ideals of how we should treat our fellow man. And, and I'm sure uh, Philemon probably agreed wholeheartedly with this principle as well. Uh, look back at, uh, at verses 3 and 4. Paul says, I always thank God, my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love for all his holy people in your faith in the Lord Jesus. Uh, and verse 7 says, Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. In those verses, you know, we sort of get this impression, Philemon is probably one of, like, it, it, he makes it sound like he's one of the most loving people Paul knew. Philemon was the sort of guy you'd put on the welcoming committee because you, know, you just know he's going to give everyone a big smile as, he come, as they come through the door. Uh, he, he's the sort of guy you'd send out to someone who's been uh, wearied by the world or, or bereaved. Uh, you just know that he has the perfect piece of encouragement for every situation. He's the sort of guy you, you'd just want to accidentally bump into on the street because he'd make your day better just by being part of it. He was that sort of guy, loving, encouraging to all God's people. And so Philemon would have known, right, that he should love everyone, that he should welcome everyone, even Onesimus. But I think the fact that Paul had to send this letter shows us that, that knowing something in principle, affirming something in principle, isn't necessarily the same as doing it. Even though Philemon's love refreshed the hearts of God's people, Paul evidently felt the need to write in verses 9 and 10, I appeal to you on the basis of love for my son Onesimus. And I think this is a worthwhile reminder for us that even the best of us 
It's exceedingly difficult to love the sorts of people that you're not expected to love because from the, uh, the pressures of society. As I said, Onesimus was a slave. They were seen as objects. You know, you, you, you break your favorite bowl. Oh, oh well, we'll have to go and get a new one. Just throw it in the bin and get a new one. What if your slave offends you? Oh, well, you just kill that and get a new one too. But Paul says... Uh, oh, well, even still, Christian masters, of course, should probably have treated their slaves better than that. But even still, there would have been few who expected a peaceful, loving reunion when Onesimus stepped back through Philemon's door. And yet, that's what Paul expected. How could he expect such a countercultural thing as to welcome back a wayward, offensive slave? A useless slave, as he calls him uh, later on in, the, in verse 11. Well, uh, Paul expected that because he knew the gospel and he knew that Philemon knew the gospel too. This is, this is the gospel that he points to in verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We sort of gloss over these, these little remarks because he sort of says them over and over again in the, in the letters. But if you stop and think about that for a moment, what Paul is, is, is saying here is quite a big deal. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace, uh, what's grace? Grace is kindness that we don't deserve. Um, I think of like a a tree that you never water and you never fertilize and you never prune, but it still gives you great fruit year after year after year. You, You don't deserve it, but you still get good stuff anyway. Peace is harmony in a relationship. Um, we, uh, I think back to a couple of weeks ago, Remembrance Day marks the end uh, when peace was achieved at the end of the First World War. The end of conflict, uh, peace between warring people, the end of enmity, of, of anger and rage. Grace and peace to you from God. Instead of God's anger, you get to rest in a harmonious relationship with him. Instead of God's judgment, you get to enjoy good things through his grace. This is a big deal that Paul is talking about here. Uh, Now, how did grace and peace come to you? Do you deserve them? Of course not. That would go against the very nature of what grace means. Uh, It's... And it goes against all that the Bible says that we deserve from God about our standing before him as sinners. So how did grace and peace come? Well, Paul says, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace come through the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. He made peace with God on your behalf. He brought God's favor, God's kindness, God's love and grace to you. And he did that even though he is God and you deserve nothing good from him. 
Paul is hinting there to Philemon, Jesus has not only done that to you, but to me and to Onesimus, your slave. That's the point of verse 6 when he talks about your partnership with us in the faith and every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. We share in the same love of God as our fellow Christians. And so we should love our fellow Christians the same. And of course that works itself out in the way that we should welcome our fellow Christians in a spirit of peace and impartiality. Even the people that the world around us doesn't think we should forgive or love. And, and I guess perhaps especially those people. Uh, now there are people who are outcasts from the world um, because of their faith. And I'm, I'm not necessarily talking about those because, you know, we're sort of, they, I mean, we should welcome them, obviously, but they're sort of easy to, to welcome because they agree with us, obviously. They're not necessarily sinning by, um, by speaking out against secular ideologies. In fact, they're not sitting, sitting at all. They're following Jesus. But there are other people who are social outcasts in society that we might not be so ready to welcome into our lives. People who are uh, considered uh, dangerous or, or, or harmful to others. Now, instinctively, I want to qualify put limits on that welcoming and we kind of do need to do that we need to not put violent people in in leadership for example or or the sexually perverse in charge of children but the repentant among them should still be welcome to us if Paul called Philemon to welcome Onesimus his useless slave when everyone else would consider him the lowest sort of outcast If Paul could expect that of Philemon, then no one who has repented before God should feel like they have no place here. If we have experienced the loving welcome of God, then we ought to extend that welcome to everyone who has experienced that too. So that's the first principle. Uh, So let's look at the second principle that springs out of the gospel. If we share an identity, then we should embrace heartily. If we share an identity, we should embrace heartily. Our identity has to do with, with who we think we are, who we are. I guess we always love to sort of put ourselves in, in categories or boxes. uh, Work is of course such a key category here, you know, How often do you say, well, what do you do for a living? Oh, I'm a medical scientist, or I'm a teacher, or I'm a housewife, or I'm a retired fill-in-the-blank. And and you mean that's what I do for my occupation. But it's not necessarily... Like, why do we think about that as then who we are? But I guess it's not really the the only category that we think of as who we are. You know, I'm... Uh, you think about yourself in terms of relationships. I'm a husband, I'm a father. Um, in our culture, you know, gender and ethnicity become key. Um, 
all sorts of things, you know, political leanings, favourite food, vaccination status, of course, at the moment. Uh, you name it. Any of those categories that we sort of relate to, that they define us, they make us unique, and they sort of become then part of our identity. Even all those online quizzes that sort of tell you what sort of personality you are or, or spiritual gift you have or what sort of TV character or piece of fruit we are. Um, there's all sorts of different ways that we, uh, that we identify ourselves, even sometimes our sins. Um, I'm, a, I'm a gossip or I'm a glutton or I'm an addict. All these things we sort of put ourselves in and, and then we sort of put all these categories together and we say, hey, this is me. And this idea of who we are, these categories that we put ourselves in, these defining characteristics... I think this is actually kind of subtly really important to the book of Philemon. Because the the defining question, I guess, that underlies this book in, in, in its culture is what is Onesimus' defining characteristic? Now, if you had have asked anyone in those days, it would be pretty obvious, especially to Philemon. The defining characteristic of Onesimus is that he is a slave. That's who he was. He, he didn't have an identity in the Roman world apart from being Philemon's slave. But if we look back through the letter, that's not how Paul identifies him. That's not the characteristics that Paul, uh, that, that Paul identifies him as. Uh, Look back with me at verses 10 to 16. Paul says, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in, in chains. That's an identity marker there. He's Paul's son. Uh, Verse 11, formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful. Again, another characteristic trait. He's useful both to me and to you. Verse 12, I am sending him who is my very heart. Again, this is who Onesimus is. Uh, And then verse 16, uh, he's sending him back no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He's Paul's son, he's useful, he's Paul's very heart, and he is Philemon's brother in the Lord. How in that culture could Paul see Philemon in, in, in this, this, um, this, this way that goes beneath the surface level? Well, it's because Paul understood that from a biblical standpoint, our identity has to come from the gospel. See, our individual characteristics and differences and and these categories make us unique, but they mustn't ultimately be what defines us. And if if we sort of do define ourselves in that way, they, they prove hollow, limited, unsatisfying. Who we are at our core as Christians comes from the gospel. Who we which is to say that our core as Christians comes from Jesus and who Jesus is. 
the Bible says that we are people created in the image of God, but fallen. Whereas Jesus is the image of God, the full, perfect image, the human uh, par excellence. You know, we sort of see Jesus and we know what it is to be human. Jesus shows us who we were meant to be. But not only that, if you're a Christian, uh, then you have been united with him in such a way that who you are has been transformed and renewed according to who he is. You have a new identity. You share in Jesus' identity. Who you are and who you are becoming has been redefined by who Jesus is. And so underlying all of the logic of Philemon, Philemon's letter is that, who you, is that we need to think of ourselves in light of who Jesus is. And we need to think of other Christians that way too. Paul, in this letter to Philemon, explains that Philemon and Onesimus share the identity of being a child of God. Onesimus' identity was no longer wrapped up in his servitude to Philemon. Uh, Philemon's identity was no longer wrapped up in his command over Onesimus. Instead, in Christ, they share the identity of brother. Uh, Now, one of the big questions that people often have as they come to this letter is, does that mean that Paul expected Philemon to release Onesimus from slavery? The difficulty is that it doesn't actually say. Maybe, maybe not. And we could go and say that this relationship and identity would have been incompatible with the the relationship of slavery. Uh, But it's possible also that Onesimus would have been better off, uh, better treated by his brother Onesimus as a slave than even than if he had to make his own way in life uh, because of the way that the dynamics of, of that culture worked not necessarily the same as we think of slavery uh, from when it was a few hundred years ago the, the key thing though was that their new shared gospel identity would have transformed that relationship whether or not Philemon was still a slave uh, sorry Onesimus was still a slave the gospel would have been their defining characteristics. Paul says there in the second half of verse 16, he is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. And now what does all that mean for us? Uh, well, it means, as I said, that the most important category that we put ourselves in is, is, is Jesus. I'm a fill-in-the-blank becomes I'm a Christian. I'm united with Christ. I'm a member of his body. I'm a child of God. I'm a saint. I'm a, a, a truly useful servant like Onesimus. I'm a myriad of, of other blessed things because of Christ. Oh, how strange and divine I can say all is mine, yet not I, but through Christ in me. But it also means something about the people that we identify with. Uh, Sometimes we, we meet people who put themselves in the same box as we do. 
we connect with people on the basis of, of shared characteristics. Maybe uh, um, you connect over work. You know, I'm a healthcare worker. Yeah, me too. Cool. Let's be friends. Uh, or, or the basis of similar relationships. You know, I'm a father. You're a father. Cool. We get along now. Shared life experience, aspirations, cultural backgrounds, what have you. You're a fill in the blank. Me too. Let's be friends. But if our ultimate identity is found in Jesus, then our connections should be should be based on that too. Just like Philemon and Onesimus, the relationships are bound together because we share an identity in Christ. The best identity that we can find and connect and bond over is this. Hey, you're a Christian? Me too. Alright, so we share in God's love and so we should welcome impartially. And if we share in our identity of being united with Christ, then we should embrace heartily. Uh, This leads us to a third principle. If we share in grace, then we should reconcile heartily. If we share in grace, we should reconcile heartily. Uh, Let's look at verse 17. So Paul says, if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. And now we've already established that this is a, a high and, and difficult and, and really countercultural calling. But in the next couple of verses, it seems that the problem isn't just the culture, it's actually personal. We only sort of get a vague idea of the problems that Onesimus has caused Philemon. Um, lost income would certainly be there, but that's probably only the beginning. Uh, we can speculate on what else might have happened. Onesimus uh, probably stole from Philemon, defrauded him maybe. But whatever had happened, Onesimus had caused uh, real problems for Philemon, personally, financially. And you can sort of understand how this would become such a big issue. Think about how angry you would be if, if someone who was supposed to be working for you was consistently using your time and money for their own personal interests. Or even if if one of your workers was lining their own wallet with your cash. You would be furious, and with good reason. And, And of course you'd want them to pay you back for whatever they've taken from you. Now put yourself in Paul's shoes here. You've been told, you've been asked to intercede in this relationship where Philemon, uh, sorry, Onesimus has probably stolen from Philemon. Uh, in Paul's, in Paul's case, his, his income was probably entirely dependent on the donations of others at the best of times. Um, and this was hardly the best of times. Four times in the letter he says, I'm a prisoner. I'm a prisoner. I'm, I'm in chains. Paul was probably living hand to mouth. The, the prisons there weren't like uh, today's prisons where you sort of get three meals a day and, and a nice roof over your heads. Paul was probably in a dark pit with not really much source of food or, uh, or warmth or anything like that. 
He was probably living hand to mouth. He wouldn't have had a savings account. He wouldn't have had superannuation or or big ticket assets like a house or a car. By any measure you like, Paul was almost certainly utterly impoverished. And Philemon, on the other hand, was probably a, a successful businessman, if not quite wealthy. Now, if you were Paul in that situation, what would you say to Philemon? I know what I'd say. I'd probably be like, Philemon, I know Onesimus has stolen from you. I know you're probably a bit short on funds as a result. But look at me. I have no funds whatsoever, and I don't hold it against anyone. I'm doing okay. I'm content with very little. So you can just get over it and forgive Philemon and get on, right? It would be pretty easy to respond like that, right? To tell Philemon to to suck it up and just be content and get along for the sake of the gospel. The gospel is more important than the, the money you think you're due. But that's not what Paul said to Philemon. Now look with me again at verses 18 and 19. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back. Here is Paul, impoverished, imprisoned Paul, giving Philemon a blank check. Any amount of money you think you're owed, Philemon, I'll pay it if that's what it takes to get you to forgive Onesimus. Now, if, 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 if Paul is so impoverished, whatever Onesimus had stolen will almost certainly more than Paul could afford to pay back. In other words, Paul was willing to bankrupt himself if that's what it would take to secure reconciliation between two Christian brothers. Now, I think Paul bankrupting himself uh, would be astonishing enough if, if he was one of the parties in being wronged, <clears throat> either doing the wrong or being wronged. But Paul was a third party in all this. Even in spite of that, he's still willing to bankrupt himself. That blows my mind. What could make Paul think that way? Well, I reckon Paul wasn't thinking necessarily that way. I think he was thinking about someone else who had bankrupted himself to secure Paul's own forgiveness. I reckon Paul was thinking back to what he wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. The incredible lengths that Paul was willing to go in pursuit of reconciliation were but a mere shadow of the lengths that Jesus went to secure our reconciliation to God. We, through Jesus' poverty, Jesus bankrupting himself, have become rich. We share in that grace. And if we share in that grace, then that that should push us to go to the same lengths as Paul, both to forgive and also to see our fellow Christians forgive each other. Forgiveness is is not just about you not holding uh, other people's sins against them. 
If you want a, a culture of forgiveness and, and reconciliation within this church, then you should help others be reconciled too. Now, I'm not saying that you should go around being a nosy busybody and, and oh, you've got a problem? How can I, can I get in, in on this problem to try and fix things? Be tactful. But when you're in a position to help people being reconciled, you should help them and you should be willing to do whatever is necessary to help them be reconciled. That's the third gospel principle there. Now, we've talked this morning about how the gospel calls us to relationships that welcome impartially, connect heartily and reconcile readily. Think for a moment. Imagine a society where, where all of those things characterised our relationships. I imagine a society where, where everyone, uh, regardless of who they are or what they've done, can expect a welcome and a pardon from the people around them. This is the sort of society that the world around us, and you probably as well, I'm guessing, desperately want. It's the sort of society that the world desperately needs. Um, because of course, the, and, and of course the postmodern culture that we're in says it's built on tolerance, but in reality it's only really built on the idea that if you love and forgive me, then I'll love and forgive you. What it promises, it can't deliver. What it, the world wants and needs and promises, only the gospel delivers. It delivered then, right? The transformation that Paul called for uh, has, has been lived out by millions of Philemons and Onesimuses all over the world throughout history since then. Uh, this, this way of forgiveness, this new identity for slaves led laid the groundwork for the abolition of slavery. Slaves weren't seen as subhuman anymore. They weren't seen as unworthy of forgiveness. The gospel overcame that culture. And in our day, the gospel can overcome cancel culture as well. If you want to see cancel culture overcome, it won't start in our parliaments or, or, or on social media. It won't start out there. It starts here in Mafra Community Church as we hear the gospel together with countless other Christians, uh, as we believe the gospel together and as we live out the gospel together in our fallen, fractured relationships. Uh, and as it spreads, more and more people will be attracted to the gospel because it, in it they can find forgiveness, both from their fellow man and, more importantly, forgiveness from God. So let's pray that we would live that out together, shall we? Loving Father, gracious Lord, forgiving Master, you have brought us to share in this same gospel as Paul, Philemon and Onesimus. It changed their lives, it changed their relationship and eventually it changed their culture. Lord, as we look around us and indeed as we look within us, we see the same tendencies towards uh, unforgiveness and prejudice as there was in Philemon's day. So please, Father, have mercy on us. 
Help us to live out the gospel, to share the grace and love and union with Christ that you have shared with us so that all the world might know your grace. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.